McMaster University has over 210,000 alumni living in 140 countries around the world, and they are some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. Unconventional will introduce you to some of our alumni who are working to make our world a brighter place in their own unique way. Join me, Karen McQuig, Alumni Director at MAC, as we meet alumni in the arts, cutting edge entrepreneurs, alumni leading the way in health, technology, education, and more, as we learn the moments that their path from MAC became unconventional. In today's episode, I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Sherry Vanderpool, a 2001 McMaster Computer Engineering graduate. After a decade of experience at IBM developing cutting-edge software and leading development teams, Sherry was an expert in knowing how to architect a successful technical solution. With a strong passion for animal agriculture and veterinarian medicine, she took a risk by leaving her job and enrolling in an intense four-year program to become a doctor of veterinarian medicine. After graduation, she melded her two educational experiences and launched her company, Catalytics, in 2014, working alongside her brother, Alan, to lead a team of software and hardware engineers with cattle-specific experience to bring technical solutions into the Canadian cattle industry. Sherry has also completed veterinarian work in Uganda and South Africa, which has provided unique cultural perspectives when working in animal health in different parts of the world. So welcome to our podcast, Unconventional Sherry. So nice of you to join us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I've got two uh, very young children, and so I'm outdoors because my husband is trying to get them to sleep for their naps. So hopefully that <laughs> keeps them quiet. But you might hear birds in the background. I hope that's, that's okay. Yeah, that's lovely. So I'm going to go back to when you were an undergraduate student. So as I like to say sometimes, go to the Wayback Machine and think about when you were getting ready to graduate. Uh, were you a student that had a master plan of how your career path itself would evolve? And if so, what was that master plan? What did it look like? I definitely did not have a master plan. I went into engineering because it seemed like a practical choice. And there were other things that I was actually more interested in, but I was a, um, a practical person in some ways. And so I did what I thought uh, was needed. And then, um, yeah, actually I worked in Belfast uh, the summer before I graduated and after I graduated. And what I ended up doing for the 10 years after that I sort of fell into uh, because it was there, it was convenient, it was a good job, it was a good offer. And right out of the gate, I sort of took what was easy because it was right in front of me and it seemed like a, a natural choice. Um, that being said, I don't know that that was the best choice. And uh, as much as I had so many good experiences at that job and doing that kind of thing, um, it, it definitely um, took me to a point in life where I was living in Toronto. I was uh, working at a company that was one of the biggest companies in the world. I was a team lead, which I think external to there would be the equivalent of a manager in a lot of other positions um, in a lot of other companies. And I uh, was, was responsible for a product that was one of their biggest products. I lived in a place that, um, uh, this sort of uh, uh, Bloor Spadina kind of um, area. So it was a really exciting area to live. And from all external views, it seemed like a really successful life. And it seemed like something that would be wanted. And I got to that point in my life where I realized I was in a place where I did not want to be. And I did not want to um, 
proceed in my career because where it was taking me was a place I didn't want to go. And what I had done out of the gate was sort of take what was offered to me, went with it and found myself 10 years down the road in a life I didn't want to live. And it was really this moment of, um, of fear um, that was perhaps a fear of um, a fear of the unknown that drove me to a position where I was somewhat trapped by my career. And I had to get to that place where I had to decide, was I going to be brave? Was I going to make a change? Or was I going to just keep on going with that? And to take that moment to say, I'm going to take this jump, I'm going to end this career that's so successful in so many ways and just start again. That was a huge thing for me. Um, and, and I thought about it and I did the, um, I did the research. I, I realized what kind of jump I was going to make. And then I had to just go for it. And that's when I quit my job at IBM, uh, a big job. And I went back to Mac, which was a big thing to do at the age of 30, uh, to go through that first day that you have on the first day of kindergarten kind of thing, where you've got your pack lunch, you're going to school, you're wondering, you know, will I make friends? Will this be interesting? Am I doing something really crazy here? And I went back to my master to get prerequisites for vet school. And that was uh, really interesting. I think that experience uh, going, going into that moment was, it both seemed kind of, kind of crazy, kind of intense, but also really freeing that I actually made a stand for something that I thought that I wanted to do. And I moved away from that sort of fear-based decision-making into something I really cared about. And I have to say, I was in classes with 17 year olds. I was 30. It wasn't, uh, it was, it was quite a juxtaposition, but everybody was so lovely. I feel like the, the students at that point in time were just such a great, welcoming, open group of students, maybe more open than my cohort at 17 would have been. Um, and I went back, um, I went back to school. I got my prerequisites with no guarantees I would get into vet school at all. And uh, thankfully I did get into vet school and uh, went on to become a veterinarian. So, so I think, yeah, I, I was just going to say that, you know, when you're talking about that and I'm thinking about that, that a lot of people like might be in a, so you go to university, you pick, uh, you know, your degree, I'm an engineer, I'm working at IBM, I have a, you know, I have a good life. And then you have this moment mm -hmm. of, I just not really sure that this is the right spot for me. And it, that's a big fear. And you talked about, you know, fear. So were you a risk taker before this? Or was this like a whole new sort of side to Sherry and yet to really, you know, because I think most people have a fear of like, how do I, how do I take that, that leap of faith? Yeah. Um, I always, I always did things, um, this podcast is called unconventional and I was always okay to do things that were unconventional. So backing up to my uh, computer engineering degree and I do computer engineering in society and the society program, such a cool program because you get to combine um, a, a core subject group along with uh, engineering and society courses that, that tell you a little bit about the impact of engineering on the, on the world. And then you actually do your core 
engineering. And so I was actually the first student that was able to do uh, fine art as a core subject group. And that was the coolest thing ever because I actually got a chance to interact with other artists, to, uh, to spend time in the basement of Togo Salmon Hall in rooms that I'd never seen before in my life to connect with professors and to do that kind of stuff. So I was always willing to, um, to create my own program and to uh, make that step. But I just knew that for myself, I wanted to make sure that I was taking care of putting food on the table, that kind of stuff. And so that potentially that economic uh, pressure caused me to be more cautious. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that I played by the, by a typical book or, or I didn't take any risks. Yeah. So let's walk through like when you decide to do this and then you go to school, uh -huh. you become a veterinarian and then you decide to start your own company. And yeah. that is a big risk and a big, um, it, it's a huge adventure when someone does that. So where did that idea come yeah. from and how did you get that idea off the ground despite any challenges you may have faced when you were, and it's catalytics, right? I think that's just such a yeah. neat name, catalytics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we work with cattle, we yeah. work with things like data analytics and then, you know, catalytics, the kind of concepts of a catalyst, maybe it's self-explanatory, but there you go. I explained it. Yep. Um, yeah. So I was always interested in connecting technology to biology, to veterinary medicine. So when I went in to become a vet, um, I always wanted to do that uh, um, out of the gate. So that wasn't a really a change. How that would look like, I wasn't quite sure. Um, I grew up in an area where every direction outside of our house was farms and fields. And so I spent most of my time when I was, um, when I was a kid in barns, out in nature, that kind of stuff. So that's always been such a draw to me. And I think sometimes when we start to talk about technology, it sort of has a soulless feel to it. But where I find the interesting part is when you actually take these really intricate, beautiful biological systems and you see how you can understand them more. You see how you can um, interpret and predict them in a way that you can actually, um, in our case, uh, prevent things like disease from happening as opposed to, you know, patching up a bad uh, situation after it's already occurred. So, so I'd always had that idea. Um, in my, in between my third and fourth year of vet school. So I streamed large animal. And in that uh, summer, I went to Cornell to do uh, a program called the Summer Dairy Institute. Really neat program, um, some great speakers. They do a great job of connecting different people. And I met a couple different individuals there who were doing things that were similar to where my mindset was at. And as soon as I started talking about what I was doing or asking them questions, it was this instant synergy. And that's where I got connected with different groups that were doing that more from a veterinary point of view and didn't necessarily have this software and hardware skills to realize their ideas. And that just became a natural partnering uh, with some of these organizations to be able to create that um, realization of some of those technical products and um, software solutions. So you mentioned that you lived abroad in Belfast and I think you also did in Leeds. Mm -hmm. So during that time, what did you, you know, from that sort of, you know, living abroad and being, you know, getting a global perspective, has that, has that waved its way into your current work? And what did that teach you about yourself when you were living abroad? You know, bringing that up and talking about risk, that's a really good connection because 
what that taught me, I think that potentially set me up to be able to make that risk later in life when I needed to, to, to change my course. So I sort of signed up. So McMaster had this program. I don't know if they still do, but they had this program where you could do an exchange uh, for your yep. leads. And it was something that wasn't really well advertised. And I kind of signed up for it. And lo and behold, it happened. And next thing you know, I'm going to England. And um, I was probably, what, about 19 years old. And I was a pretty naive 19-year-old in a lot of ways. Like, like, I knew I had my wits about me. But still, I mean, the world is... Um, uh, the world, I think, back to then, that was about 1999, is fairly different, too. Uh, the internet wasn't what it was right now. I mean, cell phones weren't really so much a thing. And I um, I found my, I, I bought a ticket. I got on a plane. I put all of my belongings into a hockey bag, which is such a Canadian thing to do, I think. <laughs> and I headed over to, to Leeds. And uh, actually, the plane goes to Manchester. And I got to Manchester and um, there was a welcoming committee that was going to take students from Manchester airport, people like me, uh, to Leeds University. And they stopped the day before I got there. And I wasn't aware that they had stopped doing it. Um, I guess maybe there wasn't enough flights going in or something. And so I found myself in an airport across the other side of the world with nothing. I didn't have pounds. Um, I hadn't... I hadn't, other than the States, I hadn't left the country before. So this was all very new to me and I was very green and, uh, everything that went wrong seemed to go wrong. I accidentally left my, my coat on the plane. They wouldn't let me return. So that went to Germany. My, my watch got stolen at a train station. Um, I took a bus to Leeds, got there and realized as I was getting there that I had no money to pay for a taxi. Um, a really nice lady gave me some money. I got into the taxi and I realized I didn't have the complete address. So fast forward to me being left on the side of the road without almost anything other than my hockey bag. Yeah. And night is falling. It's a Sunday. The student office is closed. And it was that moment of realizing here I was thinking myself, uh, you know, a pretty smart engineering student, and I didn't know how to make a phone call. I, uh, the phones at that point in time, you couldn't put change in. You had to go to a corner store and get a card and use the card. And then I didn't even know what numbers to dial necessarily to get out of the country um, uh, if I wanted to call home. And it was that moment of realizing what have I done? How have I gotten here? And, and what am I doing so far from home? Um, where it's like, you have to stop and you have to regroup and you have to figure out, you know, I'm either going to, get a plan and make something happen or I'm sleeping on the streets in my hockey bag. <laughs> so, um, so it was, it was that moment where it's, it's like, okay, I'm going to start to talk to people. I'll talk to somebody here. Can they find somebody here who works for the, you know, for the university? Can they do this? And finally I got somebody to let me in to tell me where I belonged because I didn't even know St. Mark's flats was an entire block of, of, uh, of student accommodation. And I got into my, uh, I got into my tiny room and all I wanted to do, cause I hadn't slept for 24 hours and I had had just like a harrowing experience was I wanted to take a shower. Yeah. And 
it was that moment where I realized I didn't know how to take a shower in English. <laughs> it sounds like such a basic thing, yeah. but obviously you need to go in towards the stove and pull that red cord that will then turn on the heater and then go into the bathroom and pull that white cord that will then turn on the, uh, the power shower. And then there's multiple dials that you had to work with. It was just, I mean, it's, it sounds like a really basic example, but it was that moment of y you figure it out or else, um, uh, or else kind of, right? It's, it's a bit of a sink or swim moment and having that bravery to regroup and then get on with it was a big deal. Um, I did figure out how to take a shower and I did meet <laughs> some really amazing roommates, uh, people from Norway, from Germany, uh, from China and got the chance to throughout my life connect with them. They're still good friends um, to this day. I got the chance to go to their countries, some of them and see them later on and have that connection. Um, but I think sometimes it's just kind of throwing your hat into the ring and going with it. So this past year has been one that no one expected. So what have you learned? And is, is it, has it inspired your, you know, your business, your life? Like how, how, mm. has, the, how has the pandemic in, impacted um, your world? Well, I've got um, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So our world is always busy so sometimes people talk to me and they're like yeah I've gotten kind of bored you know my Netflix is running out and and I'm just not in not in the same headspace as far as that goes but um the thing that I think it really pushed us towards is that um some of the some of the some of the abilities that we've come to when we've been forced to, which is the ability to connect over so over um, different types of media, where we've been able to um, be able to do things like online phone on um, to do things like uh, uh, mobile consultations with physicians, or uh, avoid potentially getting into cars or planes to to make those connections. I think in the past we've said that some of those um, some of those choices we make that have a negative environmental impact, uh, oh, we can't do. That's not possible. I mean, that would take such a sacrifice. I think when we've really been pushed, we find that we can do it, and that push potentially has rocketed us ahead. You know, three to five years of where we thought we would be as far as adopting some of these technologies and strategies because we're all slow to. Uh, to change the way we do things. We like mm -hmm. the way we do things. And, um, you know, change doesn't always come easy. But it's, I think it's been, um, it's been good in some of those ways that, uh, that teach us as a society that we can adapt if we're really pushed to it. So what have you learned about yourself as a leader during this time? A leader. So... I would say that I'm more of a reluctant leader in some ways. I'm the fourth of five children. And so I'm used to lots of bosses in the house. And maybe my siblings might disagree. They might say I Well, I'm I, I'm I'm the oldest of four girls. So yes, I can understand that when it comes to three and four, they say that the first two like to tell them what to do. <laughs> yes. Um, but that being said. I think one of the things that I try to do is to really get to know people. I'm fascinated by people. Maybe it is, you know, having three older siblings to, to watch, but I'm fascinated with watching people and um, figuring out what they're good at and trying to take their ideas and their skills and 
maybe the word would be to curate them, to say, you know, you've got this idea here. I really like this. Let's go run with this and trying to give them space to, to feel out their ideas and to feel out their talents. So as far as my team goes, I've got some really, really strong players on our team. Um, we have a very professional team um, and not many junior people on it. Um, and so there's a lot of trust there and there's a lot of synergy in that group. And I'm also, uh, one of the things I, I should mention is that I work with my brother. So my brother was the, uh, oh. he was the second employee in the, in the company. So, um, so I, I think being able to have that loose trusting leadership, always having that direction, but giving people a chance and a space to make their own statements. So you um, talked about that you combined um, engineering with fine arts. And then after graduation, mm -hmm. you went to work in Belfast at a data mining company where music became part of your life, right? Like you, you learned to play the fiddle and other instruments. Um, so is music still a big part of your life? Like it, what, do, what does music bring to your life now? Yeah, it, it definitely is. I mean, I come from a really musical family, so that was always really important and that was central to a lot of what we did um and so yeah i i tried to pick up whatever instrument i could and um we were just getting ready to do a big saint patrick's day concert just before the pandemic hit and this so that was one of the big disappointments because being a busy mom uh and you know uh, running a company and doing all the things that we do that was one of the outlets and having a date like that where we were able to uh communicate through music to allow everybody to have a good time was, was uh, uh, a bit of a disappointment. But we, um, what we did actually over the summer is I live in a little court and we were able to actually uh, create safely socially distanced uh, driveway concerts. Oh, cool. So, so our neighbors would actually set up little, um, little areas where they were maybe, maybe bring a lawn chair and a drink. And, uh, and we played concerts through the summer. We did one on Canada day and uh, a few other times. So we were able to do that. So that was actually something that there's no way we would have done that if there wasn't a pandemic. And uh, I think it was a really uh, highlight. It was, I think it was a highlight for uh, my neighbors and myself, definitely. What's one piece of advice you wish you knew when you graduated? It's probably to be careful not to take what's handed to you. If you, um, if you're somebody that has a lot of interest and, and maybe talents in different areas, uh, what you'll find is that people do come and start to seek you out. And the problem with that is, although it's a good thing, sometimes you end up jumping on opportunities because they're in front of you instead of curating your own opportunities. And so uh, going in instead with an idea of what you want and what would be interesting for you and what would really be a good fit for you would be uh, a better way to take that, I think. Um, I don't know where I got this from, but, but uh, I remember hearing somebody say that a really good trick if you're trying to figure out what you should do or what you would be good at is actually to go back as far as you can remember and think of the type of activities you, you enjoyed as a, as a young child. And if you liked uh, playing games like Monopoly or if you liked skipping or if you liked playing house, uh, 
a lot of the times when you look into those activities, those are the type of activities that naturally resonate with you. Did you actually like being in a bit of a teaching position? So you always wanted to play teacher or did you like more active games where you wanted that connection, that constant social connection, then maybe you should do a job that actually has that social connection in it. And if you think back to that point in time, that's your least biased self. You haven't had, you know, years of what your parents want or what society wants or what you think you should be to lay on top of that. And so that is actually a really neat trick. Um, for me, it was making things. And so I always loved making things and building things. And so whatever I did, I knew that I wanted to make things. And as part of our company, that's one of the things that we do is we actually, we're one of the few companies that, uh, I, I don't know if there's any other companies that actually combine hardware, software, and veterinary medicine. So we make objects that actually help uh, with animal management. We also make software systems as well um, and software systems that allow, uh, that allow people to be preventative about things like animal health. It allows people to know, for instance, uh, what's happening as far as antibiotic use so that they can decrease that. And it actually is a piece of the story of sustainability in the world of cattle and animal agriculture because we're trying to be smart about what we do, be more efficient about what we do, require more feed, require more resources in order to be able to, um, to, to uh, be more sustainable, to create a better system, to push that envelope forward. And being on the cusp of all three of those, we're in that unique position to be able to realize some of those things that are very difficult to realize elsewhere. It's, I think I might liken it to, if you wanted to build a house and you have tradespeople and you're the homeowner, and if you don't have somebody who's the architect, uh, and we get back to architecture, which was actually my initial thing that I wanted to do in high school. <laughs> um, so, so you get the chance, if you don't have somebody in these situations to actually be the architect of those, then what you have is you have a very disjointed, sometimes, I mean, sometimes you get lucky and um, sometimes you get a product that you want, but a lot of the times it doesn't hit the mark. You don't have somebody that, that understands all of those sides of things in order to be able to realize, realize them. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's really been an interesting uh, journey to get to this point. So what's next for you? Where do you see yourself professionally in the next five to 10 years? Well, just talking a little bit of where we've come um, might help answer that question. Uh, so we started back in 2014 as a company, um, and we've slowly added employees over those years. Some, uh, some great, um, we've had some great software and uh, hardware engineers. I myself, of course, am a veterinarian. And uh, recently, too, we've added TELUS Agriculture to the roster uh, through uh, their purchase of Feedlot Health Management Services out in Alberta. And, um, and through that, we've been able to be even more of a part of their story of sustainability. Um, their goal now is to help feed the world more safely and sustainably by connecting these agri-tech solutions and data across the whole food value chain. And being a part of that story, too, that's allowed us a lot more um, a lot more of an ability to take our ideas and our know-how and, and make more use of them. I've always thought that 
somebody will know that you're good if they see what you make and they see what you make is good. And so a lot of the time, um, if anybody has any doubt in what we do, I can just point them to what we've done, point them to the products we've made, point them to uh, the systems that we've created. But I think, I think as you get a bit larger, you actually have to pay attention a bit more to the marketing of those things and to that story that you create around them, uh, that not everybody knows you and not everybody knows your story and, and has that personal experience with you. So in the next little while, I think what we're trying to do is just uh, let people know a bit more about us, connect with people, um, connect with uh, students and uh, create a place where people who are interested in agriculture, interested in it from a technological point of view, can connect in. So one of the things we like to do as we sort of head to the end of our, our conversation is ask you a few rapid fire questions. So I'm going to start okay. to fire them off. So what's your favorite memory of McMaster? Oh, I don't think you're going to like this. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> my, I think, I think my favorite uh, memory of McMaster is actually uh, in my first and second years, I got to know, um, I got to know a few people who were in upper years. They were in mechanical engineering a few years beyond me and they wanted to play cards all the time. And so they wanted me to play cards with them and I had a very different schedule. So a lot of it involved me skipping class and Ooh. them teaching me the lessons. <laughs> so, so, I, so they wouldn't want me to go to calculus and they'd be like, okay, quick, we'll, we'll give you a a crash course in this calculus uh, class that you're about to take. So a lot of my uh, a lot of my education actually came from my peers, which if you take a step back is actually a really positive approach to learning. Like it's it's a great way to learn um, that one on one versus being in a class of 500. That being said, I feel like it doesn't quite take the official uh, uh, <laughs> attended all my classes um, uh, box. So are you, but, a car, yeah. are you a card shark then? Like what, what, what's the game? Uh, we used to play a game called eight, five, three. Uh, I don't know if it's very well known and um, yeah, I'm not really a card shark. It was just, it, it was the, it was a banter. It was, they were all into machining different parts for their bikes um, and they liked making things. And when we were playing cards, we just chat about all these really neat things that they did yeah. and all these areas that they got into. And so uh, I just found it so fascinating. Very cool. What's your best COVID purchase? So just before all of this started, uh, my grandmother had a cottage that we grew up going to and there was a property just down the road that went for sale and nobody wanted it. It was rocky. It was rough. The cottage was run down. Uh, we kind of threw in a low ball offer and they accepted. And so over the past two years, um, we've had the, the chance to actually, uh, I got a chance to pretend to be an architect and I yeah. got a chance to actually design a small cottage. Uh, and we've had to keep with a lot of the, a lot of the, the very specific rules because it's close to the water, but it's really kept us busy. And it's been so amazing being able to actually work with different groups and uh, realize this really unique property that we hope will be special to a lot of people. Oh, lovely. What book are you reading or podcast would you recommend? Um, the, the book I'm reading right now, um, uh, I've got... I've got one that I just started, so I, I, it, it seems really good, but I'm just into, it's Small Great Things by uh, Jody Picole. 
And if I was to recommend a book that I've read recently, it was yeah. How Will You Measure Your Life? Uh, Clayton M. Christensen, James Alworth, uh, Karen Dillon. It was a really neat book. If anybody's in the place where I was as far as trying to make uh, trying to make decisions about your life and trying to know how to uh, how to reassess your priorities, I'd recommend it. What living person do you most admire? So I told you I have two kids. Yep. I have a two and a four-year-old. Um, so my four-year-old has Down syndrome and her name is Constance and she's just absolutely amazing. And, um, and I didn't know that much about it as most people yeah. don't until that's something that you actually, uh, it actually impacts your life. Yeah. And she is just the coolest little human. Uh -huh. Um, and everything that she does, she has to work so hard at, she had to work hard to learn how to walk. And she, I mean, she walks great. She, she, had, she has to work really hard to be able to talk, to even be able to make sound. Um, it takes her twice as much energy to do most things that she does. And I watch her do it. And I watch her do it with grace and be present and just be a lovely human while she's doing what's twice as hard for everybody to do. And I feel like whenever I come up against something that seems like a big challenge, I just, I immediately think of her and I think of what she has to do to do the basic things. And I think, oh, okay, I can do this. Come on. <laughs> yeah. If Constance you know. can do it, you can do it, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, lovely. What's your personal motto? Um, so if you talk to my husband, he would probably say that one of the things I say the most right now is pants down before you pee. That does not make a very good motto. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's a, it's a good tip. <laughs> it is, you know, for all your listeners out there. Yeah. Um, but then if I go the opposite way and I get really, uh, introspective, um, I read the book Les Miserables and I was not expecting much, mostly because I just heard, you know, I watched the musical and, you know, I didn't know that there was this heavy book behind it. And it was just like, you know, big punch after big punch as you're going through it. And um, as much as sometimes we like to paint life as a really positive thing, often we have difficulties that come in waves and some of them are really hard. And I remember reading, um, a quote that said the pupil dilates in darkness and in the end finds light just as the soul dilates in misfortune and in the end finds God. And I just thought that was such a, such a point of perspective or how would I say it? I, I would say that that quote gave me so much perspective on the fact that during those dark times, the things that are bright and are good are the things that you need to gravitate towards. Those are the things you need to go after and connect with because those times are the times when you can get a proper perspective on things. When things are bright and sunny, everything seems bright, mm -hmm. you know, and, and those are really uh, game changers. So, so I, I think that that, that, uh, that helps me. And one song that best describes your time at McMaster. Oh, gosh. The thing is, is that the, the song that comes most to mind is uh, Home for a Rest by Spirit <laughs> of the West. Yep. This is all about drinking, yep. um, which I am not uh, condoning. But, <laughs> um, but I, I think that song is a song that connects me back to those times. Because when you're, when you're out first in the, you know, 
when you go to university, you're meeting all these people, you're having these experiences, you're, you're connecting with people and getting to know people and letting their perspectives uh, um, connect with you too. That a song like that um, really was uh, something that brought joy. And on top of that, in the song, they spend all their time, I think, drinking in pubs and in uh, in the train instead of out experiencing the the, the beauty of England. Um, maybe it just shows you that you can have a great time in an unexpected place. Uh, you know, you can make a good thing of anything. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah that's good. So, um, so that brings the end of our podcast, Unconventional, with you, Sherry. I mean, this has been a really interesting story, and um, I can I can hear the joy in your voice when you talk about Constance and your in your in your life and um, and the choices that you made and you know your company. So, um, you know, we're going to keep watching to see how how your life progresses. But I think it's going to be um, full of joy, whether um, Spirit of the West is play, playing or not. But that is a great song. That's a lovely that, that's a that takes me back to university. Like <laughs> and the food playing. That's exactly. From, oh, he's yeah. so good. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you.